This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. And Jason, I know you're tight on time. I really probably know how busy you are more than most people. But yes. Let's get going. All right, folks. So my name is Adam Sockledge, also known as the best of live audio. And I'm so excited to be here with you folks. I love talking with fascinating thinkers and doers and entrepreneurs. And who better than today? We have Jason Pfeiffer, the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, as well as the author of the new book, Build for Tomorrow. Jason, I'm so excited to be talking with you today. How are you? I am very well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about all things uh, uh, building and adapting and growing and entrepreneurship and hear what folks in the room want to talk about. It's going to be a fun half an hour. Yes, it is going to be. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs here on Twitter and Twitter spaces. So folks, we're going to be diving in deep into yes, his experience with Entrepreneur, his new book, Build for Tomorrow. And if we have some time, we're going to be doing Q&A as well. So if you have questions, get them ready. We'll bring you up in just a bit. And I already see familiar faces. So I am so excited. Jason, let's get started. Let's warm up a little bit, right? I told briefly your experience with Entrepreneur, and I'm sure there's so much more we can dive into. But ultimately, you're focused on the entrepreneurial world, the entrepreneurial ecosystem, and studying innovation and the history of innovation. So how did you fall in love with that as you look at the history of innovation? Yeah, you know, it's something that I do that uh, is, is a little maybe unique and unexpected, which is that I marry these stories about the smartest entrepreneurs of today. And by the way, when I use the word entrepreneur, I am not just speaking about a specific kind of person doing a specific kind of work. I really have a broad definition there where I think of entrepreneurs as someone who makes things happen for themselves. So that could be someone who has started their own business, but it could also be somebody who's just incredibly entrepreneurial in their line of work or, or life, wherever it is that they are and whatever is that they do. So I marry these stories of incredibly smart, adaptive, creative problem solvers with stories from history. And the reason I do that is because right now, as we grapple with the things that we work on, and as we are in our own companies working on things or watching incredibly accomplished people do whatever they're doing or debate major changes that are happening in our lives or our, our companies or our society, we don't know the end of that story. And so we can do our best to anticipate and to navigate, but we don't know how it's going to turn out. And therefore, we don't know exactly what the wisdom of our decisions is. But history tells you something else. History can tell you the end of the story. It can show you how the decisions that were made led to growth, led to change. I'll give you one quick example that I always love to share, which is that the automobile, when it was brand new, was, uh, well, it was called the horseless carriage. And it was something that people were quite 
confused and annoyed by if a, if, a, if an automobile uh, uh, you know late 1800s drove by you somebody would be standing on the side of the street yelling get a horse at the car and they called it the devil wagon they threw rocks at it and one of the, um, the stories that we tell about the adoption of the automobile and the way in which it ultimately became the primary mode of transportation is is that Henry Ford revolutionized the uh, manufacturing and as a result made cars more affordable and accessible and that's true but what's left out there is that henry ford was actually the beneficiary of a change in the automobile industry from uh from from decades earlier that had opened the way for people to embrace and adopt this technology and here it was the Early automobile manufacturers advertised the car as a replacement to the horse. And they would say, get rid of Dobbin, Dobbin being a kind of generic name for horse, get rid of Dobbin and, and, and start driving this automobile. But the problem was that people found that offensive because they loved their horse. They, uh, they, they had horses in their family for generations. And now here's this obnoxious technologist coming along and saying, I know better than you do, and it's time for me to replace your thing with mine. And ultimately, the auto industry realized this thing that I think every innovator today must always be aware of, which is that people don't like new things. What they like are better versions of old things. And so you need to meet them where they are. You need to build what I like to call a bridge of familiarity in which you understand what people are comfortable with and then you make sure that you start there and then create a bridge that they can come across to your new solution. For cars, that meant that people, the, the auto industry started talking about cars not as a replacement to the horse, but rather as a better horse. Advertisements started to, uh, uh, they, they started to describe cars in horse terms. They started to name cars after horses, which is a tradition we still have today with the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the you know, Mustang, for example, the car. Uh, they started to use uh, popularized terms like horsepower. And this is a lesson that now that we can see how it played out in that world, we can see how we can apply those lessons today whenever we're introducing something new or experiencing something new and how we need to build a bridge of familiarity. Woo, buddy, I absolutely love what you went into there. And thanks for giving us that background. You know, as you study the history of innovation and as you bring those more relatable topics to today, you also talk with some of the best entrepreneurs, some of the best celebrities out there, right? A-listers and of course, billionaires and business founders as well. You know, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? Oh, I, 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 that's funny because I, I actually always advise people that they should define success for themselves. I think that one of the big mistakes that we make as individuals is that we work off of someone else's definition of success, and therefore we have a hard time appreciating whatever it is that we have accomplished ourselves. I remember, for example, a friend of mine, uh, Andy Bartz, who uh, just recently was on the New York Times bestseller list for a, a novel she wrote, which was fantastic. But she had a couple books before that, you know, didn't do nearly as well. And I asked her how she kept going through those times where she was releasing books and they and they weren't, um, you know, meeting maybe some other definition of success. And she said that she had always, uh, she had always created this definition of success for her. She said that my definition definition of success is that I put out a book and it it enables me to put out another book, right? Like I put out a book and it sells well enough that somebody will publish my next book. That's it. 
That's her definition of success. Now, if she's able to do that, then it, you know, then then she's able to focus on a really attainable goal. She's not going to drive herself crazy if she doesn't always make a New York Times bestseller list. Then, then ultimately, she did, of course, and it was it was incredibly satisfying. But I really love that. I think we all should be doing that. So I do have access to incredibly successful people. I've interviewed everybody from you know The Rock to uh, um, to uh, LeBron James to Ryan Reynolds, Maria Sharapova, uh, uh, Bethany frankel um you know these folks i really love talking to um they're all incredibly successful but but i'll tell you that when i dig into their work what i find is that they, they often have something that they have figured out or some some means of, uh, by which to think about what are really human very human and relatable challenges um because although they may be doing things that the average person is not they still have to manage their time they still have to um um and find meaning in their work. And so they often tell me these things that I just repeat forever and ever. I'll just give you one example, which is Ryan Reynolds, who told me, uh, you know, Ryan Reynolds, uh, obviously um, incredibly successful actor, but then also started an advertising agency called Maximum Effort, which has been very successful, um, uh, Is uh, uh, control has controlling stakes in Aviation Gin and Mid-Mobile. Anyway, uh, Ryan told me, we were talking about transitions in, in in careers, and he said, in order to be good at something, you have to be willing to be bad. And I really, I just really love that line because it's completely true. Whenever we start something new, we're going to be very, very bad at it. And the thing that separates successful people from people who don't pursue greatness, I think, is that the successful people are simply willing to be bad. They understand that that's part of the journey. They're willing to tolerate that deep uh, discomfort with being bad and um, and ultimately get to a place where they can finally be good. Ooh, I absolutely love hearing that. All right, folks, so we've just started getting this conversation going. I want to dive into more about, yes, all the people that you're talking to, but of course, all the different areas of the book that you just put out this week. It's called Bill for Tomorrow. And then, folks, we're going to go into Q&A, so get your questions ready. You can already push requests. I will bring you up as soon as possible. So, Jason, this book that just came out this week, I've seen you go through all the work that you've put into it is so impressive to see it behind the scenes. And it's an action plan for, yes, embracing change, adapting fast, future-proofing your career, and so much more. So, you know, I think you broke it into four different sections. You know, how did you decide upon those four stages and, and why? Yeah, so so the book Build for Tomorrow, I appreciate that, that question. Um, it really comes out of me watching entrepreneurs and others navigate the pandemic. I, I had, I had bef before March of 2020, I had concluded that the most important quality of success is adaptability. I was just watching people who, um, who, who had reached what we would call successful, uh, having gone through so many failures and so many pivots and changes and, and, and realizing that some people are just really good at doing that and others, I think, quit too early along the way. Um, and so I, I wanted to understand what it was that they were doing. And then the pandemic really was the moment in which I was able to see how this was happening because the, uh, the pandemic was a, just a fascinating experiment in which the same change happened to everybody at the same time. And then you could watch people move through it. And I saw some people just thrive and I saw others feel very left behind. And I, and I realized, and look, there are all sorts of reasons for this. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not discounting anybody's uh, challenges uh, at all here, but, um, but, but what, one of the things that I, I just, I kind of discovered as I was tracking this is that everybody goes through change in the same four phases. I was watching everybody do it. Uh, it was 
panic, adaptation, new normal, and wouldn't go back. Panic when you're just completely panicked. You have no idea what's, what, you're, what you're doing, and, and it just feels terrifying and scary uh, and, and paralyzing. And then adaptation where you start to find some some new things um, that you can work with. You start you start to you know the, the 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 dust clears and you see what is available to you. New normal where you start to build a new foundation. You find new things that are comfortable and then wouldn't go back. That moment where you say I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. I wanted to understand how incredibly successful people move through those four stages faster than other people because everyone experiences it. Everybody experiences it, but those, but but some people move through it faster than others. So that became the, the the point of investigation for me, and that's what Build for Tomorrow is. It's really a guide for moving through those stages as fast as possible to get to wouldn't go back. All right. So just to quickly recap: four stages: panic, adaption, new normal, wouldn't go back. Now, folks, don't panic. But Jason, why do people fear change? How can we prepare for panic? So people fear change because they equate change with loss. That, that I mean, there are a lot of reasons, obviously, but but I, this is this is the primary one. They equate change with loss. You see something new come, and you immediately think of the old, familiar thing that you have, and how that is going to have to shift, or how you're no longer going to have the same access to it, and that feels like loss. And then because we want to know what's coming next. We want to understand the future. We start to build off of what we what we think we know. And if we know loss, then we're going to extrapolate that loss. We're going to say, well, because I've lost this, I will lose that. Because I lost that, I will lose this other thing. And suddenly, our entire foundation feels like it's completely rocked. And what we need to instead do, and what we can talk about this more with the other phases, is we need to shift so that instead of feeling and seeing loss, we are finding and anticipating and moving towards gain. It's much harder to see because loss is very easy to see. Gain is often kind of hypothetical at first, but I promise you that it's there. And if you believe that it's there, then you can move forward with confidence and find it. Okay, so they need to move forward with confidence. They need to adapt, if you will, right? So, and I know in this book, you have a great story. It's about, you know, work your next job. That's the way that you say it. So what does that mean exactly? What is that story? Yeah, so that, that goes to, um, you know, I guess that kind of gets us into the, uh, the the second phase there of adaptation. So I believe that everybody at all times, everyone listening to this right now should be working their next job while at their current job. What does that mean? Well, think of it this way. In front of you right now are two sets of opportunities. Opportunity set A and opportunity set B. Opportunity set A is everything that's being asked of you. So you go to work, you have a boss, that boss needs things from you, and you're going to be evaluated by those things. That's opportunity set A. Opportunity set B is everything that's available to you that nobody's asking you to do. And that could be at work where you have, you could take on new roles and responsibilities. It could be uh, joining a new team. It could also be something outside of work where you're interested in uh, learning some new skill. You take a course, you you see something that people are doing um, and you uh, and you start to build towards it. You like podcasts and you launch a podcast. Uh, you know, Adam, you got uh, uh, deeply involved in, in live audio and, and you know, you, you built out a brand from it and, and became deeply engaged in it. Nobody asked you to do that. And I am here to tell you that when you focus 
on opportunity set B, you are focusing on the more important opportunity set. It is not to say that you can give up on opportunity set A. Obviously, you have, things are required of you. You've got to do them or you're going to lose your job. But opportunity set B is where growth is. If you focus only on the things that are asked of you, you will only be qualified to do the things you're already doing. Opportunity set B is where growth is. And that is where you start to build the skill sets for whatever it is that comes next, even if you do not know what comes next. Because once you have more skills and once you know more things you will create new opportunities that you could not have even anticipated now so that's what we all need to be doing it's what i push myself to do it's what this book is really nobody asked me to write this book but i decided that i wanted to do it and i decided that i wanted to expand what i can do and how i can reach people and now here we are here we are and so for folks if you're panicking right or you're going through that adaption stage as well you know don't worry because it becomes yes new opportunities and they become normal, right? The new normal. And then finally that moment, that stage of wouldn't go back. You know, Jason, what's that story? What are those two stages about? So, you know, wouldn't go back is, I mean, I, so, uh, you know, new normal and wouldn't go back are, um, are, are kind of different, uh, you know, d different, different phases of the same experience where we're finally getting to something that feels incredibly new and incredibly valuable. And we're, we're reaching, and we're reaching an opportunity that we hadn't anticipated before. One of the ways I like to think of it is that what we're ultimately learning to do is to reconsider the impossible. You know, we have these barriers that we put up around ourselves and we say the good ideas, the valuable ideas, the, the possible ideas, these are the ones that are in my little box here. And then the impossible ideas, the terrible ideas, the complicated ideas, the things that nobody wants, those are outside. And when moments of disruption come, and this is this is a uh, this is a line that I I got from a, a professor named Brian Berkey at Wharton. Um, you know, he, I had asked him why moments of disruption can lead to such great uh, improvements, and he said it's because uh, moments of disruption force us to shift the window on what we're willing collectively to take seriously, which is to say that we realize that the things inside of our narrow little box, our narrow little window, no longer work. And so we are forced to look outside. And when we do, we discover that some of the greatest, most transformative ideas are the things that we left outside. Quick, quick story is... Um, that, that, that illustrates this. I, I, I love this this little story. Is there's a woman named Lena, and she runs a wig shop in uh, Baltimore called Lena's Wigs. And Lena uh, used to run uh, that it has a storefront, very simple. You understand, you know, everyone knows what a storefront is. And um, as people would come in off the street and they could shop for wigs, and Lena employed somebody to greet these people off the street. And then when the pandemic arrived, she could not operate the storefront in the same way. And so she was trying to think well, how, how can I stay in business if I can't have my doors open and let any old person walk in off the street? And uh, the only thing she could think of was something that was not some revolutionary idea. It was something that she was very aware of before as a concept. It was appointment only. She could go to appointment only. But she had never wanted to do that because that's too much friction. You know, why would you create more barriers to entry for your consumer? But she had to do it. And so she did. And when she did, she discovered two amazing things. Number one, customer happiness went up. Number two, sales and profits rose. Why? Well, because as it turns out, nobody walks in off the street like a random person and buys a wig. 
This is not her customer. Her customer is not walking in randomly off the street. You know who walks in randomly off the street? Random people who just kind of want to look at wigs. <laughs> so Lena was employing somebody to greet people who were coming in and not purchasing. Meanwhile, you know who her per her actual customer was? It was someone who was buying a wig for a you know personal reason, relig generally religious or health reasons. And those people are, in fact, incredibly thrilled to have a private experience so that they're not doing this very personal private thing in front of a bunch of random people who walked in off the street so by going to appointment only lena got to save money because she no longer had to employ somebody to greet somebody who was not her customer and instead she could create a better experience for the person who actually was her customer this is something she always had available to her but she didn't know because she had always thought that there was one way to run this store and that's the way that she had to do it and then disruption forced her to reconsider the impossible and that's what led to growth I love that. I'm writing that down right now. Reconsider the impossible. And this is fantastic. I mean, Jason, every time that we talk, I'm always learning and, and hearing new stories from you. And you're covering stories that, yes, they could be The Rock or Ryan, Ryan Reynolds or Bethany Frankel, these big popular names, of course. But I, even the story that you just mentioned, it's so small, but it's so powerful. And I absolutely love that as well. Okay, now, folks, so we are on live audio, right? So, of course, we want to use the power of live audio, the engagement aspect of it. I'd love to hear what your questions are. What are your questions for Jason? What are your questions about the book, Build for Tomorrow, or about the magazine, Entrepreneur Magazine as well? So uh, go ahead, raise your hand. I will bring you up. And Kelly, oh man, I'm so glad to be that you're here as well. Uh, you are a true woman of impact and you're doing fantastic things. So thanks for joining us. What's on your mind today? Hey there. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so actually I have a question because I've built many companies during change and in times like the pandemic when everyone was just like, no, no, <laughs> no, we can't do this. So a lot of people come to me and they ask me, you know, what is your top advice for, you know, building something during the pandemic or building during a down market or how do we transition from web two to web three? And, you know, my answers are normally fail fast. You've got to pivot, you know, you've got to look for opportunities. Um, but, you know, that's basically what I do. Um, you know, and also I'm very stubborn and focused. <laughs> so um, one thing that I've learned is that a lot of entrepreneurs and people who want to be entrepreneurs lack confidence. So what is your best advice for building confidence during what is considered to be hard times? Yeah, um, Kelly, I really appreciate you being here and for that great question and those insights. And I, I totally agree with the advice that you that you um, give to folks who are asking you that. So here's here's an important thing that I think people should think about. And, you know, th th this is also um, in the book Builds for Tomorrow. So I think that one of the one of the problems that we have as individuals is that we identify too closely with the output of our work, which is to say that we do a thing and we therefore define ourselves by that thing. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell once gave me this really wonderful advice where he said, self-conceptions are powerfully limiting. That if you have a really specific idea of who you are and what you do, what you're really doing is turning down all of these growth opportunities that don't fit into your narrow definition of yourself. And so what we need to do is we need to push ourselves to identify with something that is deeper and not uh, not so subject to change. We need to find the parts of ourselves that do not change, even in times of change. We need to define ourselves in a way in which we're very aware of our value 
to others. And we are giving ourselves the freedom to offer that value in endless ways. So that's kind of abstract, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a clear example. I used to think of myself as a newspaper reporter. That, that's where I started uh, in my career. And I stayed in that industry, I think, far too long because even when I decided that I didn't really like uh, working in newspapers, I, I, I identified so closely with the idea of I am a newspaper reporter. I was limiting the idea, I'm, I'm limiting my understanding of what my own skills were. And I was really afraid to leave this industry that I felt defined me. And so I stayed much longer than I, I should have. Um, I, I made something of a similar mistake when I then got into magazines. Um, there were, I mean, I'm still in magazines, but there were many times where I thought to leave. And uh, and, and but the idea of giving up the identity of being a magazine editor was really difficult. I, I, I now realize that what entrepreneurs, incredibly successful entrepreneurs do is that they define themselves and their mission uh, in a really simple, clear headed way that is not anchored to anything that could change. So um, the CEO of Foodsters once described to me that his company's mission is to bring joy to people with upgraded sweet baked goods. doesn't really matter what product that is. doesn't really matter what way in which to do it. doesn't really matter how you reach consumers. That's all going to change over time. And uh, similarly, I now define myself by the phrase, I tell stories in my own voice uh, rather than uh, that I'm a magazine editor or a podcast host or book author or anything. So to your question of, of how to find confidence, I think one of the first things that we need to do is take a good look into ourselves and start to shed the identity that is too surface level so that we realize that we have some value that is transferable, that because we did something in one space, we can move into another one and still bring something really valuable with us. Because the more confident we can be in what our value is, the more we can actually start to express it. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, Kelly, what are your thoughts? Oh, yeah, I love that too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I have my inner voice mission that I always think about. And every time, you know, before I do something, I'm like, okay, is this going to help me? <laughs> is this going to, you know, make a difference? So, yes, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Great question, Kelly. Stick around. And for folks, I mean, if you're here already, give Kelly a follow. Give Jason a follow, of, of course. Give Entrepreneur a follow as well. Uh, we got a couple more questions, Jason. So do you have a few more minutes? We can get those yeah. answered. Awesome. Yeah, let's do it. Cool, cool, cool. So we have Nikita. You had your hand up first. Welcome to the stage, Nikita. What's on your mind? Hi, hi. Thank you for giving me the mic. Hi, Jason. Hi, Kelly. What a great panel. Uh, so I am Nikita. I'm from India. And I am a B-Farm graduate. I've done bachelor's in pharmacy. So my question is, how do you uh, uh, value or how do you measure the potential of an idea? And how do you go from idea to execution? What are the steps in between? Oh wow, that, I, that's a um, so thanks, Nikita. That's a that's a great and very large question, uh, and we could we could spend all day talking about how to go from idea to execution. But I'll I'll just tell you one thing to start, and it builds it builds a little bit off of what. Um, what you know, Kelly had said there, which is, you know, she she, she had said um, to you know to fail fast, which is uh, I can't Kelly, I can't remember if that's exactly what you said, but you know, sort of a Silicon Valley ish kind of phrase that gets um, gets kicked around uh, a lot. But but I'll tell you where I think the the real value is in that kind of thinking, which is to say the most important thing is to just put something out into the world and then be able to see how people respond to it and understand their responses. Um, uh, you know, you you can you don't have to. 
uh, have a fully formed, perfect thing that you launch. Instead, what you really need is just something that people can react to and engage with. I'll tell you right now, for example, I, I have a friend of mine uh, who has a, a really interesting startup idea, and he has, and you know, this is um, this is, I think, this possibly goes against some social media advertising rules, but uh, but whatever. He uh, he basically what he did is he started a website for it. Um, the company does not exist, but the website um, uh, advertises the, the the service, and um, and then he's running some ads uh, uh, to promote the site to see if people sign up and ask for more information. Because what he's really doing is just trying to test the marketplace. Is there interest in this. And then once he can find people who are interested in it, he can get in touch with them and learn more about them. What do they need? What are the problems that he can solve for them? How can he solve them? Right. The more that you just have something to engage with so that you start to talk to the people who you can serve and you zero in on what their problem is, you can start to create solutions. And then you put a solution out there or you start to build one and you learn and you refine it and you invite your first consumers to also basically become your partners in shaping the thing that you are building for them um it's 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 all about gathering it's all about understanding it's it, you know think of it as data think of everything that you do whether it's whether it's success or failure as simply interesting data that's going to help you build the right thing that, that that's that's the starting point kelly uh, kelly actually i'd be curious because i had uh, in, in, invoked your advice if you have anything else to add there uh, um, uh Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was on mute. Oops. <laughs> no, I was just basically saying, um, yeah, yeah, I think that's great advice. Good, good, good. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. And thank you, Nikita, for that great question as well. All right, so we have time at least for one more question, it looks like. And Wolf, I brought you up. I think you do, are doing fantastic stuff here on Twitter Spaces and beyond. I think you host Fantastic Room. So folks, give him a follow, check him out. And I was just talking with you recently, actually, you know, and quick relationship back to you, Jason. You asked me to write a article for Entrepreneur Magazine last year. I did it, six pages. It was fantastic. And you were really really pushing me, Jason, who in the live audio and social audio space is creating actual tangible ROI and Wolf is doing that. So that's another story for another time, but uh, he's doing great there. And Wolf, welcome to the stage. If you're here, do you have a quick question that you'd like to throw in real quick? Hey, Adam, appreciate you having me up. Great to connect with the entrepreneurship team. Yeah, super interesting area here that we've been covering with social audio. It's kind of become my life, living about 40 hours a week on these spaces and just interacting with so many different people um i didn't have too much off the top of my head because i'm not sure what's been covered already mm. i was curious if you know I, I feel like and this has probably been covered a lot um, myself i kind of got into into the startup world and then more into social media because of covid and the way that that pushed everybody into this world and then i saw so much people uh, get pushed into the social audio space i think because there was a real comfort to it where they didn't have to have the video on of like a zoom call and they could just relax and just have just that audio side. I was curious if you've seen, you know, more entrepreneurship styles being done around the audio side of things outside of Twitter spaces, if there's any other like competing platforms or things that are being built off of this with brands and different companies, um, specifically because I just think that there's so much more people can do with it because they don't have to have that feeling of being in front of a camera. It's just like, you know, we're just talking, I'm just pacing around my office, right? Just having this conversation on the phone. So I was curious if you've seen outside of Twitter spaces, any other areas that are really taking advantage of social audio maybe in the entrepreneurs that are attacking that? Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks, Wolf. Um, and, uh, you know, to me, the conversation about live audio um, 
really goes to, to a, a, a an interesting repetitive conversation that we have culturally about new things and, and innovations, uh, which is that people tend to, and, and I, I tell a lot of stories in the book, uh, which again is called Build for Tomorrow, um, uh, in, in, in which this happens, people tend to extrapolate outwards in, in both directions, um, a good and bad, whenever there's something new. So people will say, this is going to change everything for the better, and here's why, and this is going to change everything for the worse, and here's why. And I, I feel like we we saw both of those in, in the live audio space. And obviously, basically every single tech platform uh, uh, raced to launch a live audio product uh we are on one of them right now and um um and you know and what they're finding is that live audio just like everything is not the solution for everybody all at the same time everywhere all at once um and uh and instead what what tends to happen with with all innovations is that it takes some time but but our great concern, or, or perhaps our great excitement, depending on the perspective that you have, is that new is always going to replace old. That something new is going to come along, and it's going to wholesale replace the thing that came before it. That that uh, uh, television is going to fully replace radio. That uh, c- uh, cars are going to fully replace bicycles. And that's that's not what happens, of course. What instead happens over time is that. Uh, new things integrate with old things. We take the best of the old, and we take the best of the new. We figure out how to build something that, um, in which we all benefit from a world of more options. Uh, you know, it's it's really interesting to see the history of the bicycle, for example, where you know the bicycle. It actually took quite a while for the bicycle to catch on, in part because the earlier versions of the bicycle were just terrible. Like, you know, the first version um, was called the Bone Shaker because uh, it had absolutely no shocks and, and you just would rumble down the street. And um, uh, it took a while to get to the safety bicycle, which is the thing that we know now. And um, and so that became a kind of primary mode of transportation. And then when the car came along, people said, oh, the bicycle is going to disappear forever. Uh, instead, what happened was that it, it became... Um, well, first it was a tool for the poor, then it also became a toy for children for a while. And uh, and now, of course, it is settled in culturally in a number of different ways where um, it is uh, it is light mobility, it is exercise, it is culture, uh, and uh, and it lives alongside and it and it, and it serves lots of, of different needs uh, alongside other modes of transportation. I think that the same is is basically going to be true with live audio, where you know it started as this thing on Clubhouse where everybody was connecting because they couldn't connect in person, and that made sense for a moment. And now I think we're in a we're in an interesting transitionary time where we're going to see what this innovation really uh, where it fits in what its correct use cases are I, I think that if you were to flash forward five years from now live audio won't look anything like it does now because we're still kind of trying to figure out what it is and who is it for and when is it going to be most useful to people and that's an exciting thing because it means that there's opportunities for others to identify those spaces and really capture them and so we should always uh, welcome that and be a part of it and I think also check our instincts to say oh this new thing is going to over overwhelm what came before in either an overly positive or an overly negative way. And instead, we start to want to figure out what does that integration look like and how does this new thing fit really snugly and offer more options in a world that has already existed.
Wow, I absolutely love this. Great answer, Jason, and great question, Wolf. Thank you so much for joining us. And I want to be cognizant of our time. I mean, we could talk all day about this stuff, but I'm sure you've got to go. I mean, in talking about audio, you also have a podcast. So if folks you want to hear more about, uh, you know, just a lot of these stories that we just weren't able to cover today, go follow Jason, of course. He has a podcast called Build for Tomorrow. He also has Problem Solvers with Entrepreneur Magazine. Uh, Jason, where else can we find more information about what you're doing on this journey? Uh, well, I really appreciate that. Obviously, we're here on Twitter, so uh, a pretty easy thing to do is to follow me on Twitter. But, um, but you know, I, uh, the book Builds for Tomorrow just came out on Tuesday, and uh, and, and it, it goes uh, deeper and broader into all the things that we talked about today. If you are experiencing any change in your life or career, you're considering it, if you're a change maker yourself, uh, you know, if you're interested uh, in, in understanding where things are going next, the, this is the book that really has collected the years of wisdom that I've gathered from meeting the most um, interesting people, uh, both, you know, famous like Ryan Reynolds and uh, not famous, but, uh, but but doing incredible work like like Lena of Lena's Wigs. Uh, it's all there in, in Build for Tomorrow. So I would hope uh, people would check that out. I absolutely love that, Jason. And you know what? I'm going to do this. For folks in the audience, if you've been listening, if you're enjoying this conversation, if you want a copy of Build for Tomorrow, I'm going to go away and give out five copies of the book. Just send me a quick DM. I'd love to hook up with you and then just send you it, whatever, wherever you may be. If you're interested, just send me a DM. I think you will absolutely love Build for Tomorrow. So I want to thank Entrepreneur Magazine for joining us, Wolf, Kelly, and of course, Jason. Thanks so much for your time. I'm so excited for everything that you're doing with Entrepreneur magazine and of course with the new book build for tomorrow as well so thank you jason oh hey thank you adam and th that's a very generous um generous thing to do with the books i really appreciate it well thanks everybody for being here i really appreciate it thanks to my colleagues at entrepreneur for uh, logging in with the entrepreneur account um and uh, uh all the folks who came up and uh, uh kelly wolf nikita who asked great questions uh, it was a pleasure Yes, as, as well. It was very much a pleasure, Jason. So for folks, thanks for joining us again. My name is Adam Soklich, also known as the best of live audio. I love hosting these fascinating conversations with thinkers and doers, and many more are coming up soon. So if you're interested, follow along. I'd love to see you again. All right, everyone. Take care. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks. Bye. This is the best podcast. BEST stands for business, entrepreneurship, startups, and technology. I'm your host, Adam Soklich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.